Welcome to Chit Chat Money. Today is Tuesday, April 28th. Today we have an interview with our friend Justin Costelli. Um, he's yeah. our friend. I guess we can call him that now. Uh, we interviewed him. Um, so, yeah. The, yeah. But it was a great interview. Uh, we'll talk about more of the details before you know right. we preview it. But, yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. Um, and then we also have our news stories before we get to that. So what are you talking about? Uh, I'm talking about Peloton. Not really much news. I guess the really the springboard for a lot of people talking about it was they had the record for live streams on a class. And they've had a lot of momentum with the work from home. All the gyms are closed, so people are buying up Peloton using the digital stuff more. So I want to talk about that and the momentum they're basically having with their business right now. And then I'm going to be talking about a Fortnite Travis Scott concert that went on. Um, and Matthew Ball wrote a good piece on it, so we'll talk about that as well. Uh, and then, as always, we have our current state of FinTwit, uh, Fuck, Mary Kill, Hot Water, and our anecdotal evidence. Let's go. <laughs> Okay, welcome in. I will kick things off this week. Uh, Fortnite had a concert this week, and it was a Travis Scott concert. If you don't know who he is, he is an artist slash rapper, um, mostly for the younger generation, I would say. Um, yeah, Gen Z, millennial, younger millennials are probably his demographic. So I'll kind of cover what a Fortnite concert looks like. So I did not, I wasn't actually part of the experience. I did not. I was not involved or I was not on the Fortnite map. I don't play Fortnite, so kind of hard to do that. But you're warped into the Fortnite map, and usually, if you don't know anything about Fortnite, there is sort of a 100-player cap per experience. Um, this one was capped at 50 players. There was ultimately 27.7 million people that attended the concert, but and I'm putting attended in air quotes, but basically players couldn't affect what was going on. You could watch the concert, and you could see it appear, but you weren't actually like you couldn't affect someone else's experience in the process. If that makes sense, you could control your player. Matthew ball described it as being sort of locked in a roller coaster. If that makes sense. If that's are you, you kind of understand. Yeah, that I, yeah, I understand how it works. I think that's a good analogy. Um, you have the experience, but you're not controlling. It. It's kind of like a theme park uh, with a preset thing. Although the concert um, is technically live. So yeah. yeah. And there wasn't any gaming component to it. Uh, it was merely a social experience for a lot of the players um but like i said there's 27.7 million unique players that attended and this it's not new it's not a new concept they've done this now twice before this was pre-recorded routines and animations um the the concert slash appearances that have happened before were marshmallow which if you don't know who he is i think he's basically like a dj um, yeah, he's one of those, um, and he, his head costumes a marshmallow, and you don't really, you know, it doesn't come off or whatever. But right, and then there was also some Star Wars production stuff. But Matthew Ball went on to state that he does not think Fortnite inevitably wants to be a producer, um, but they recognize these experiences as more of an R and D expense expense to see what's viable, see what the people like. See, I mean, twenty seven point seven million people attended this event. It, there's obviously some viability there. A lot of people like it. So, and that obviously unlocks some potential down the road for Fortnite in terms of uh, optionality. I know people use that all the time, but optionality on the platform. Optionality, cop out, always a cop out, right? It is a cop out, but if you think about it, instead of uh, just be, being a game platform, they can kind of 
pivot that in a sense. Do you see this or do you see Fortnite down the road transitioning to sort of a promotional platform? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely going to be they're going to try for more immersive things. I think I know a lot of people talk about this and Matt Ball is probably the one we read, but there is something where people have this idea and they call it the metaverse, uh, which is not an original idea by us, but it's like when real life and the internet kind of mold together a lot of internet internet based things and real life things like and it's hard to explain but basically like there would be a platform either built by one company or many where a lot of these things that you used to do in real life you can also do online if that's convenient and this is kind of an example of that although it's really hard uh with like i guess you would describe it as latency speed you just the connectivity can't keep up with it for a million people to be on the same stream so it is segmented and it's not really the metaverse where you're actually immersed in this whole new world. But could Fortnite, as an example, take some of what Live Nation's market share? Sure. And then expand this to a bunch of other activities. Mm-hmm. I think that's definitely true. And I think also the gaming companies probably have a good advantage just from the younger generation from the games itself. I know Fortnite has a giant lead in this, but other companies like EA, Activision, the big ones... And Nintendo even trying to immerse their uh, players in that and eventually sp- expand outside of gaming into more just like, I don't know, like living experiences. But th- that, that seems way down the line. This seems like the yeah. toughest thing they could do right now where it's actually a fun experience for people that are fans of Fortnite or Travis Scott. This feels really early on in what could be a promising development for video gaming. Um, do you see this sort of helping or aiding in the transition i want to say a transition aiding in transforming gaming from just a consumer a customer experience to one that could be b2b so businesses Mm -hmm. sort of promoting themselves or advertising on the in this immersive experience Uh, yeah it's gonna be a while for that just because most managers are like 50 or I guess the average age would be like 50 or 40 or something like that. And this, you know, the people that are using this are like 20 to 30. But I think that's a good idea. And then advertising can definitely play a big role if they use Fortnite concerts or whatever, Fortnite events or Fortnite promotional activities. Um, I don't know if they had Star Wars pay them, but if they were going to do this regularly, like previewing clips of really popular movies or TV shows within Fortnite exclusively... Um, they could definitely charge for that. I don't know if that's going to be meaningful for how large of a business they are, but there's a lot of potential there. And the expansion of this platform, if you have all the eyeballs there so much and like two to three hours a day, people are immersed within these platforms. There's a lot, there's just so much potential for, uh, use cases for just anything besides outside of gaming, even like way different. Yeah. And I'm picturing, even maybe to the extent where it's location based, so I'm I'm still thinking along the lines of artists, but let's say Post Malone or someone like that, Marshmallow, Travis Scott, they've got a concert coming up in an area. Maybe they can promote that um, for a lot of the Fortnite players. Maybe in one area, they could kind of do that 50 player cap experience in a single area. Maybe that could be something down the road as well. Eh, possibly, possibly. And then what do you have? Another note here about connected TV. Yeah, I said, uh, does this kind of at any point replace connected TV as where we see advertising heading? As these gaming platforms, specifically right now, Fortnite, no one's really on that level. Other, No one's really t- gotten to that level yet, but it could replace a lot of people's home screen, potentially. 
Although someone like Roku, Apple TV Plus, Amazon Fire TV are still solid growth engines, but could you see potentially like the easiest thing to think about is would you go through Fortnite to watch Netflix? Eh, maybe. I don't really see why they would want to do that. I think they want to do more immersive things and interactive stuff. Yeah, and there's, I mean, I don't know how much of a blend there'd be in the target audiences there either. Um, as far as connected TV users, people that own their own connected TVs probably aren't as into gaming just because the audience age. There's uh, maybe, probably maybe. discrepancy no, I there. Think, I mean, there's a decent overlap, right? Okay. Young people are getting connected TVs. Um, young Younger people are playing games, and it's usually males uh, that are mainly playing games. That's the larger audience. But I think, at least for now, connected TV and video games probably won't overlap, but maybe over the next decade they'll inch closer and closer to each other. Yeah, that's possible. Um, Let's get to the Peloton news, though. What do you have? Okay. Uh, Well, as you might imagine, Peloton has benefited a lot from the virus. It doesn't mean whatever. I'm still compassionate about it. but What's your story called? Oh, my headline, if I was a CNBC writer, would be Peloton riding high. Yeah. Right. Good puns there. Uh, very easy to write. We'll start, we'll start introducing it with the actual story titles. Yeah. It's a little yeah. more interesting. Yeah. All right. So Peloton I'm, I'm, is riding high. Why don't you describe why? Yeah. Basically an editor. But the Bloomberg article came out. Uh, it was it was all over everywhere. But the they set a record with 23,000 riders in one live stream class. They now have over 2 million subs with first or they had their first non-studio class because with the work from home stuff, they had to close down. So this is kind of seeing how much demand they got after the uh, shutdowns, because obviously a lot of people with closed gyms are probably going to want to get Peloton or Peloton type things. Mm-hmm. Shares went up 6% after that. Uh, if we look at some of the financials though, I'm going to kind of play some of the bull case on you. Uh, the Q2 2020 was their last quarter and that ended in December. So we haven't seen any numbers post coronavirus, but we will see that in early May. 81% of their revenue or 81.7% of their revenue is from hardware, and that means bikes or treadmills, mainly bikes. No, uh, six, go now, now I'm going to kind of interrupt you there. Hardware almost has a negative connotation to it now. They sell these things for a high price tag, so there is still relatively decent margins on the bikes, right? Yeah, so I'll go. I guess I'll go to my cost reference um, bullet point here. It has basic bike, which costs twenty two hundred bucks. You can get more accessories like shoes and things for more, uh, and that costs you fifty eight dollars a month with a zero percent APR, which is a sweet deal. Um, usually, typically, if you have a car, you get like two three percent APR at least, probably mm-hmm. higher. And then their subscription for content and live stream classes is thirty nine bucks a month. This includes bike classes, but it's also strength, yoga, meditation, anything you can do from home and then if you have the treadmill you can do things like that as well but that yeah that's how they charge so it's really expensive the treadmill is even more it's like four thousand bucks but apparently it's super high tech so it's actually like a treadmill that doesn't crush your knees and things like that uh but if we go back to the revenue they have 16.5 percent from subscriptions subscriptions are a lot higher margin and we're growing 107 percent, which is a strong number first question here do you think the subscription number is going to grow over 200 percent the subscription um, revenue number? Both, or or actual subscribers. So when did they grow in sync, sort of? Sort of. Uh, they have, you can do digital only, which means you don't have the bike, um, and that can give you things that you can get some of the classes that aren't like uh, spin classes. Okay. Uh, but that's different. It's like twelve ninety nine. That's kind of their freemium thing. It's not free, but it's the way they try to acquire customers. Hey, you can download this app if you don't want to buy the $2,000 bike um, just on a whim, 
you know you yeah. can try things out stuff like that so subscribers it's a little different but yeah number of subscribers and revenue should grow pretty much in sync because they charge every household the same for one subscription yeah i can see this growing 200 percent um at least for this quarter i can definitely see uh coronavirus propelling some of these sales numbers for them because i mean obviously people are locked in their homes or people are locked out of the gym they got to get a workout somehow i guess yeah i mean they're yeah it seems, I mean, logical, I don't know. Uh, it seems like everyone's talking either on Twitter, uh, even the financial Twitter community, which is a lot of frugal people, maybe. Uh, quick, even... quick anecdotal evidence. Sorry, I just interrupted you there. Go but ahead. I've seen some of, the, a lot of friends on Snapchat posting after riding on a Peloton. Oh. And they're like, where did they finish in the class? Because right. you can like see how you finished among everyone. Yeah. So... Little little anecdotal, but these are people that I would have never guessed would use Pelotons. Hmm. Yeah, and it's not like you have to buy one for yourself. You can buy it for your family or a household, um, and there's not like a lock on how many users you can have. So it can go for like three or four people, um, which kind of brings down the cost of the subscription and the bike as well. But yeah, the, the network effect of having everyone on the same platform competing for all their metrics or whatever, the, the output metrics, and then also as a brand, a high-quality brand, kind of that... I know everyone describes things as an iPhone-like thing, and that can get you trapped uh, in overpriced hardware stocks, but it seems like they have that brand where people want to use Pelotons just because it displays that luxurious thing that Apple iPhones also do, Uh, but I'll get some more of the numbers here. If we want to look at their balance sheet right now, they have strong working capital, and their cash balance is good post-IPO, and they have less than $500 million in lease liabilities, so... They're more digital, obviously, than a lot of gyms compared to someone like Planet Fitness, who is just in a world of trouble right now. Last six months, they were operating cash flow positive, but with bad net and EBITDA losses. So they had a lot of stock-based compensation. Probably a lot of IPO-related costs as well. IPO-related costs, yeah. We'll see what it looks like within a year uh, when the IPO costs aren't uh, put into the, the calendar because they IPO'd, I think, in the, yeah, definitely in the fall, right? Right. It was yeah, right yeah. around the WeWork uh, debacle because people were making fun of their S1. They were a little uh, artsy, uh, like we're changing the world, uh, S1. Uh, but they have a market cap right now of $8.8 billion, EV to sales of $7.4, which is trailing. So I bet that it's going to grow or decrease to like 3 to 4 easily uh, within the next few months here. Or not months, within the next year. They've improving gross margin, especially on the subscription side. It's gone up like 10 or 1,000 basis points, and they have improving network effects. First question here, do you think Peloton could replace the gym for a lot of people? Yeah, I, I mean, I don't think it's going to completely disrupt the entire gym business model. It might supplement it in a lot of cases, but I know there's a lot of people that, A, don't want to go to the gym. They'd rather just get it done at home. I... Th- it's hard to say without any product experience. I would love to get like I don't I don't know anyone personally. I guess there's the friends from Snapchat, but I don't know anyone with a Peloton. I would love to ride on it and see if it can replace that gym experience. If it's yeah, if it's just as good as people saying. I, I mean, I think the churn numbers look strong. Um, I know they do monthly, which kind of tricks people, but the churn numbers look good. Uh, so I think that validates that people love the experience. They're investing in this really high-quality bike. Another question here. Do the high-margin subs slash non-retail or no, sorry, not retail, um, hardware, non-hardware revenues, which is only 16.5% of revenue, 
does that validate the market cap? Because you'd have to think that if they're not making money right now selling the bikes, they want people to subscribe for $39 a month for like 10 years, and that's where they're going to make up all their money. But I don't know. It's kind of hard with that valuation. I am curious. Yeah, I'm curious if they were... Well, so you said they're operating cash flow positive. Um, and Yeah, for the last six months, but barely. Basically break even. And that's with 82% uh, of the top line in hardware sales. I'm With what these bikes are selling for, I'm willing to bet they could stay cash flow operating cash flow positive with just the hardware sales. But yeah, the value is definitely in the subscriptions. Yeah, that's going to be where they make the higher margin. Uh, their overall gross margin has been expanding. One, like the, the overall question you probably have to ask is, will they hit 10 million subscribers before or at 2025? Because that would mean assuming an ARPU of $30, which is average revenue per user, that is $3.6 billion in sales from that segment. And if you give them a sales multiple with that high margin stuff just from that segment, if you discount all the uh, whatever the bike stuff is break even, that would give them a market cap of like tw- you know, $15, $20 billion, depending on what their growth rate is. Um, and I think that's really the question you have to be asking. Yeah, I mean, I could see a world in which uh, Peloton has 10 million subscribers. Honestly, this is... This is definitely all dependent on product experience, which I guess you can look at in terms of churn rate. But if you're really doing some deep dive on the company, I recommend hopping on the bike and experiencing it, especially if you're if you're a gym goer. Yeah, because then you can see because here's my thing. I don't think they're going to take market share from people that bike outside. I think they're going to take market share from people that go to the gym. Yeah, and they're definitely in the long run going to try to expand, um, not just have the bike. Right. They mentioned that before, no specifics, but they have the treadmill now, and I definitely think they're going to go for like, I don't know, like, you know, the work at home, uh, yoga, and, uh, well, yoga is pretty easy, not much equipment, but strength stuff, trying to get that strength stuff at home, but at least right now, um, it seems like the bike is the easiest way to go about it, but you have to be concerned because in a recession, don't you think, that $2,000 bikes, exercise bikes, are going to be hit, right? Maybe, but I mean, that thing about whole, that whole thing about this is a recession for the rich, a depression for the poor, the poor weren't the one buying $2,000 exercise bikes to begin with. That's interesting. Yeah, that's probably why you're hearing a lot of people buying these things. Um, And $59 a month, um, if you think, you know, the economy is going to recover, if you think you're going to get your job at, you might take that risk. Uh, it's not that big of a monthly expense, but for some people, it definitely is. Here's where I get hung up. So they're not going to the the gym rats. They're not going to take market share from the gym rats because they aren't going there for cardio A. They're really not going there for burning calories. They're not going to... Yeah, but 90% of gym goers are cardio. Right. So that's what I was going to say is if you can get that percentage of people that are going to the gym to take a spin class to stay at home, there's probably 10 million subscribers within that range. If Definitely. But, um, that's where basically all their customers, I would imagine, come from. Yeah. Yeah. I mean... Because it's, it's not the outdoors people because they're going to continue to be outdoors. Yeah. and eh, But I think some people might buy it just because, you know, weather, you know, stuff like that. You know, It's a flex too. It is. It is. I'm telling you, it's the luxury brand. A lot of people uh, do like to brag um, because they have the Peloton. It's similar to the iPhone or the Tesla. People know the price. People they know, know the price. They so know the price. A, 
A, it makes you look good. Like, oh, look at me. I bought a $2,000 bike. And B, it says, look at me. I'm staying in shape regardless of what you look like. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I used to be a big make fun of her. I used to make fun of Peloton because of their, uh, their I don't know what they would say on their investor relations page on how they're changing the world. But the business might be saved uh, from like, you know, this huge transition of people what, staying more at home. What do they call this? They call this a white swan event? The white swan where it's positive? Yeah. No, white swan... It's just a positive black swan event. I don't know. If you say something wrong, Taleb, and then that guy, Taleb, or whatever, sees you, he'll probably, like, block us forever, so I don't want to yeah. say anything just in case. Uh, but I think, honestly, I might be... If I had to choose, if I had to either short or be long Peloton, I think I would be long uh, yeah. and buy the stock, but I don't think I'm buying any right now. I'd love... If we see momentum within the numbers and the stock valuation sees... Or stays, you know, in a similar range. I definitely think about it, though. Yeah, and that class experience is what's going to give them that churn and moat. So um, I don't think I could. I, I do see this as a viable business, and I'm not saying like like I don't think this is going to go bankrupt anytime soon. But I would love to get some product experience. Um, current state of FinTwit. I don't have much to be honest. There it wasn't well, much. Well, first the way. one, uh, Tesla almost at eight hundred dollars a share. Is it fairly valued? Uh, slight note, the California stay at home order has been extended. So the Fremont factory yeah. will be, uh, non-operational. Yeah. The positive for the Tesla for first, but month. we got to move on. I got some, if you want to, do you have anything or? Yeah. So I uh, cash app and Spotify are teaming up, which that oh, isn't, yeah, yeah. isn't that like everything we've ever dreamed of. Yeah. Those are what our two favorite companies teaming up, you know, innovative management teams, Jack, uh, Dorsey, the Enigma, Jack and Daniel. Really- Jack Daniels. Jack Daniels. There we yeah, go. they're a uh, whiskey that the I combo. would love to have. A, I would love to drink some whiskey with uh, Jack Dorsey and Daniel Ek. That would be exciting. Um, yeah. But uh, it's, it's nice. Uh, uh, Spotify is probably going to try to, you know, uh, take more, um, what you want to call it. They want to have more leverage over the labels, you know, get more direct to artists. Helps um, with margins yeah. long term. Go sure. more, yeah. Go more direct to artists. I don't think they're taking a cut on anything like this, but if they want to have those user donations, I think this could be a step forward to it. You know, like sure. all right, you you know get screwed by the labels, stuff like that. Come to us, rely on us, and we'll help you with our 300 million users, which they'll get there soon, I guess. They will be able to support you at least a little bit, um, and not just get paid, you know, right. not very much for how much uh, quality you're putting out. For maybe whatever. this is a chance to talk about Last Dance too, because I know we're not a sports podcast, but it was all over Twitter last night. Yeah, I thought it was good. We it was we, good. we watched it together, but uh, would have loved to see the 48 hours in Vegas. Oh yeah, yeah. He uh, of Dennis Rodman. If you didn't watch, he basically took a vacation to Vegas. Yeah, sabbatical to Vegas. Right. Uh, he had to go party because he was too tired of the regular season, which sounds like a nice... I wish I was good enough to do that. <laughs> yeah. All right. What did you have for current state of Fentwit? Okay. Well, I, I wrote something uh, saying that I, I ended up selling all my Disney shares, uh, which you can go read about that. But you know, I tweeted, I ended up selling the Disney stake. I you know think it could be a fine investment, but I, you know, I know a lot of smart investors like Matt Cochran and Steve Symington or Symington, who was going to probably be on the show we ha- yeah we've locked in an interview locked in the interview scheduled so hopefully within the next few weeks we get that out here we should probably figure out if it's simington or simington <laughs> yeah we'll, we'll figure that out uh i just said that i see a lot of trouble over the next few years 
And then some people responded. Steve responded. He said it's not in his portfolio right now, uh, but he would love to put it in at a much lower price. Dan Klein, who I think just you interviewed, yeah, if I remember, he yeah, said, right. I'm a huge believer in Disney. Parks and movies will fully recover, and Disney Plus will become its biggest revenue driver with much less in contact costs compared to Netflix. That's an interesting bull case, although I don't know if I agree as much on the Netflix one there. Yeah, um, so a lot, a lot of people were discussing because it's it's quite controversial because parks impacted a lot, cruises impacted a lot, movie theaters impacted a lot, but Disney Plus is probably going to get benefited uh, on the you know positive side, right? And so there's a there's some merit to what Daniel Klein said in that content costs will be cheaper for Netflix because they don't have to build out that IP because it's already existing, mm-hmm. but that's not how you build a streaming platform. Um, especially one in which it's recurring revenue. Like if people are going to pay a subscription, it's because you are constantly putting out good content. Yeah. So while they might not have to have higher content costs, it is in their best interest to do so. Yeah. I, I think I agree more with that. Um, I'm going nowhere near Disney plus. And it's probably cause I'm not a kid younger than 14. So yeah. Um, um, all right. Well, that's current. That's, that's all you had, right? Yep. Okay, so we have our Justin Costelli interview up next. Uh, what did you like about it? Uh, well, you know, as people that aren't in the financial advisor uh, community, um, we see a lot of that on like Twitter and stuff. Um, and I know a lot of people are interested, but there's that big segment of just personal investors or just people that manage money or just interested in investing that don't really know much about financial advice and how the industry works. And we kind of talked about that a lot. And I thought it was interesting for anyone that is wants to know about how the financial advisors do their daily lives, how they communicate with clients in a more digital way, how they're, you know, coping with this uh, work from home stuff. You can't, you know, meet with clients individually. So we talked a lot about that and what he wants to hope, would hope to change about the industry and then the advisor communities that he builds, uh, which he'll probably get into more detail in the long interview. So Yeah, we talked uh, a lot about the collaboration component amongst RIAs. And then we also talked about some of the advantages of being an RIA versus working for one of the larger institutions. Which I really enjoyed Social it. media is the biggest part, right? Yeah, I think just you, the different ways in which you can communicate with your clients. And I think it's almost more of a personal relationship. Uh, but it was... Lots of fun. Go ahead. Give it a listen. Here you go. All right. Welcome in. Today we are welcomed by Justin Costelli. Uh, Justin is a registered independent advisor and he's the founder of his own wealth management firm, RLS Wealth Management. Uh, Justin, welcome in. Thanks for having me, guys. Um, So let's kind of introduce this by you telling your story. How did you get involved in finance? What kind of spurred your interest? And then uh, why'd you end up deciding to start your own firm? Sure. Um, so I'm a little bit older than you guys. I'm, I'm 38, just turned 38. And um, when I was in college, I majored in econ, thought I was going to go to law school. I met my wife and then realized that I didn't want to go to school for three more years and needed to figure out what I was going to do. I went to a small liberal arts school, so I had one finance class and didn't even really like it. Um, So I would have never guessed I'd end up being a financial advisor and having my own firm. When I got out of college, my dad introduced me to a bunch of different business people and I kind of networked and had lunches through the summer to figure out what I liked. And I really enjoyed the relationship aspect of what a financial advisor did. And then once I kind of went down that path and realized that's where I wanted to go, then I really fell in love with finance. So 
you know, real quick, my career history, I was at an insurance-based planning firm. I worked at a bank. I worked at a company that did 403Bs, which is like a 401k for not-for-profit. So I worked with a lot of teachers. And then I went, when I thought I was going to start my own firm, to go work for a woman who had an independent firm in town that was looking for a succession plan. And after being there for a couple of years and being in the business for a while, I realized there were certain things I wanted to do, certain individuals I wanted to be able to work with that the traditional financial advisor model did not support. So that's when I launched my own firm. So in May of 2015, I left that firm. July of 2015, uh, it was actually RL Wealth Management at the time. I named it after my boys. So I have three boys, Roman, Leo, and Silas, but Silas was not around to be in the initial name. Uh, so July 3rd is actually when I got the approval from the state of Indiana to start meeting with clients. Um, so that, that's kind of how I got into finance was just kind of lucked into it. I, I never would have guessed that's where I would be. Um, and now, honestly, I couldn't imagine doing anything else. Um, you know, the finance things, finance part of things is fun, but I really enjoy working with individuals, problem solving, building out plans, helping people figure out what their goals and dreams are, and then kind of helping them get there. So it's, it's been a fun journey. Okay, so let's go specifically to RLS. Uh, how is it different than the typical advisory form? Or in other words, I guess, why would a client uh, choose you guys? Yeah, so, you know, it's interesting about the financial planning world. Because uh, I know I was looking at your guys' feed and catching some of your, your episodes in the past. I know you guys are really into picking individual securities and on the investment side. And when you go to a wealth management firm, investments are part of what we do. And for a long time, that's what our profession as advisors has been associated with. But more and more, what we're doing is actually doing true planning. So advising clients on everything from budgeting to student loan payments to savings to investing to insurance. And I think what really makes firms different from one another, at the end of the day, it's the principles and the values of the firm. So you know, my firm is an independent firm. We're fee only, which means we don't take any commissions from any products. We just get compensated by the fees that our clients pay us. And one of the things that makes RLS Wealth Management different from a lot of other planning firms is that I have a subscription model. So I mentioned I wanted to work with certain individuals being young professionals. And young professionals for the majority of the profession have been overlooked because they don't have a lot of money. How can an advisor charge them? How can they make a living? Um, so I have a subscription model that's geared towards young professionals, flat monthly fee. Um, you know, it's a scaled down version of what I do with my higher net worth individuals, but it's a way for me to provide planning and advice to young professionals to help them grow to those high net worth people. So I would say that one of the things that makes my firm different is that subscription model. But, you know, thinking of your listeners who might be one day thinking of working with a financial advisor, you know, not directly answering your question, but to give some direction. When you're looking for an advisor, I think it's important for you to find somebody that their values align with yours so that they're going to understand where you're wanting to go, what you're trying to accomplish. And they're not going to try to steer you away from that. They're going to try to steer you to that goal and building the plan, building the advice in line with your values. So, you know, if you're a young professional and you want to build in having a sabbatical as a part of your career and you're meeting with an older advisor that just doesn't understand that because different times, that's probably not a good relationship. So I think that what makes my firm different aside from the business model is the values that I have. And some people like those and some people don't. Um, you know, I mentioned the subscription model being a different thing, but at the end of the day, uh, once you get past that, we all have the same tools. 
you, know, you could go to, you could have the debate of active versus passive investing. So you might be a believer in active investing. You probably want to find a financial advisor that, that does that. So I think those are the things that really make things different um, from firm to firm. Um, the tools are all the same, but you want to find somebody whose values align with you. So the reason my clients come to me is something about the way that I ap approach planning, my views on life, uh, the way I prioritize family over a lot of things when it comes to my personal financial plan, that resonates with them and they want somebody who can understand that and help them do the same thing in their lives. Now, so it sounds like it's a very... Uh, in it's different from like just individual equity investing. It's very case by case holistic approach to the financial planning aspect of their life. Do you find that it's hard or that you kind of have to put a cap on how many clients that you can take in so that you can commit enough time to in like the individuals you have? Um, or are you still like kind of, all right, come, we'll plan for you. And you know, you can take as many as you want or is it kind of like a race against the clock? It depends on what kind of what kind of life as the advisor you want to have. Um, you could take on a lot of clients and just never have any free time, or you could cap them to make sure that the client experience doesn't suffer, that there's a high level of service for your clients, and that you have a good balance. So I don't have a hard cap on my company. I'm actually going to be hiring another advisor to to free up some more capacity to be able to help more people. Um, but I don't. I have not chosen to have a cap. It's kind of more a case by case. Uh, and some clients demand more of your time. Some clients don't. And it's not even necessarily how much they have that you're managing or how much planning you're doing. There's just some people that are delegators and they basically say, if everything's okay and I don't need to worry about anything, I only want to talk to you once a year. Mm -hmm. And if there's something I need to do, let me know. Otherwise, I'm going to go live my life. That's why I have you for my advisor. I don't need month to month updates or even six months. You could have other clients on the other end that want their hand held a lot um, and they want to be met with every quarter. So it, it just really depends on the type of clients and what they're looking for. And I also think that from a business standpoint, you know, that's part of what differs one firm from another is how often they're meeting, what's the frequency, what's the relationship like. So for me, I have a, a very good mix of clients that, you know, some of them are delegators, some of them want a little more hand holding, and I found a good balance. And it's a lot easier to do it today than it was even 10 years ago, thanks to technology. Um, you know, doing portfolio management is extremely easy because I custody my clients at TD Ameritrade and they have this program com called iReBal. And it takes care of a lot of the rebalancing and investments and making suggestions on what needs to be moved. So I don't have to calculate that myself. So technology makes it easier, but I do think there is a threshold that an advisor can handle. It's just going to vary from advisor to advisor based off their business. Interesting. Um, so let's pivot and focus more on the wealth management broadly. I'm curious in your experience, how has the environment around RIAs and wealth management just as a whole um, been impacted by coronavirus? Are people fearful? Are people like, oh, I need cash now. I'd rather pull out. Or I mean, what's the environment like in your experience? So I'm going to compare this real quick to back to 2008 because that's the closest thing we have in the most recent memory of a turbulent market and recession and everything that's going on. Individuals are a lot more calm this time around. And I've been doing a series of videos with other advisors, kind of asking them the same question. What are you seeing with your clients? And the, the tone has been the same across the board. Clients are a lot more calm. Um, I don't know if it's because there's the, the distraction of the actual virus 
itself and being quarantined that they're not looking at the markets or this time it's not only the financial system causing the issue, there's a bigger problem. But really the biggest change to the wealth management profession right now has just been doing a lot more Zoom meetings. Uh, there are some firms out there that are already virtual only. Uh, I have clients in a variety of states, so I've been doing Zoom meetings with them. I actually have some clients who are in the same town as me, like 10 minutes away, but they're young professionals and it's more convenient to do a Zoom meeting in the evening. So, um, you know, some clients miss the face-to-face -face in person, but that's really been the biggest thing. Otherwise, it's business as usual. And I would say that the clients that are working with an advisor that they've done planning and that the advisor has done some education over the years talking about how markets work, why we're investing, having a portfolio tied to a plan, which is tied to a goal. Those clients are more likely to not panic sell because they understand that this is part of the game. You don't get return without taking on risk. And this is what risk looks like. So this is the, the cost of investing what we're going through today. And when you have a plan and you're working with an advisor, hopefully, depending on where you are in life, your portfolio reflects what your needs are. So what I mean by that is if, you know, if, if I was managing your portfolio, you guys are going to be pretty heavy on the stocks and the equities and not a lot of bonds, not a lot of cash because you don't really need it. You've got 40, 50 years before you might even touch those funds. Sure. On the other end of the spectrum, you know, clients that are in retirement that are living from their money today, you know, we have part of their portfolio that are in bonds. Bonds, opposite of stocks, they should hold their value, but also kind of give us some income so that while the market's down, I don't have to sell any of their equities to give them the income that they're living off of. And then it becomes just managing the conservative side of the portfolio to maintain that and getting into the weeds of my portfolio management. For retirees, I actually run a tactical strategy that looks at a 10-month moving average across five different funds, which will drift the portfolio. So in February, that portfolio for my retirees moved into a 50-50 allocation, which gradually moved down from 70-30. So there's different things that you can do, but you know, my clients have been pretty calm. A lot of them are asking how I'm doing, which is pretty cool that that's where their heads are and it's not about the portfolio and they understand this is what it is. And I'd like to think that part of that is their experience just as an investor, but also part of that is the conversations we've had. You know, the last couple of years was we're looking at great uh, returns on their portfolio and dollars going up having the conversation to say, no, eventually we're going to see a negative and how would you feel about that? And you're okay to handle that. And just kind of prepping them for when this comes it never makes it easier, but at least it's not the first time they've heard it. And we've talked about it ahead of time. Yeah. I was going to ask when the times get a little tougher and there are, you know, uh, and the market's not doing so well, how do you reduce fear? But it sounds like a lot of it is preemptive. So under making sure they understand the risk before, and then also obviously asset allocation. Exactly. That's a big part of it. And some of, some of the fear you're never going to get around. So that's where the relationships come in. That's where the phone calls, the outbound emails, checking in on people, reminding them. You know, one of the things I did um, early on, I think it was the third day we had a thousand point drop in the, in the Dow. Um, I don't usually make proactive reaches to my clients on a, on a mass level because of the market. But after that, with the news, I actually recorded a video and just sent them a video as an email, just letting them know that I'm here. If you have questions, reach out. No reason to panic. And I, the reason I did a, vi a video rather than email is I wanted them to see me and hear me and hear the confidence I had behind the planning work that we've done. And I was afraid that if I sent them an email, they read the email in their own tone. So if they were scared, they may have read it as me being scared. But here they got to see me smiling, 
um, you know, reminding them that we have plans, reminding them that they're out, their portfolio is allocated a certain way for a reason. And they got to see that I was not scared. Um, so those little touches as well, I think help out also. But my clients, a lot of them I've been with working with for 10 to 12 years. So we went through 2008 together. So they know that we've, we've weathered a storm like that before and it's not fun, but I was able to guide them through that. And I think there's that trust that's built up over the years that helps out as well. Um, so discussing the individual investments a little more specifically, I've heard you talk before about the concept of thematic investing or like mm-hmm. kind of investing in themes. So, you know, like the war on cash or cybersecurity and picking stocks and that, why is that so inviting to investors? Why do investors like that so much? And then how do you think ETFs will play a role in thematic investing moving forward? From a wealth management standpoint, at least for me, thematic investing is not a part of what I do with my clients. Um, But being an advisor, trying to keep a a hand of what's going on and being aware of what's out there and what the opportunities are, it's something that I've spent time researching and had a podcast episode um, with Tim Maloney about kind of thematic investing. And I think the reason that that is so intriguing to investors is we all want to believe that we we can pick the right stock. And I think more and more investors understand that picking the right stock is harder and harder to do today. You know, the, the amount of stocks that are trading today is lower than it's ever been, I think. I remember reading that somewhere. It's nowhere near what it used to be. There's fewer stocks trading. There's more technology. There's more competition. So picking the right stock is hard. So now if you can go back out to, okay, I might not be able to pick the right stock, but maybe I can get the right area of the market. So whether it be cybersecurity or gaming or, you know, uh, utility, whatever it might be, now there's a way for me to at least place a bet on one area I think can go better. I do think there's the opportunity for um, an investor or an advisor to really leverage having some of these sector plays in their portfolios and overweighting. That's just not my style. So for the average investor, guys like yourself who are managing your money, I think that it gives you the opportunity to place a bet in an area that you have a a good feeling for or you've researched without having to have the risk of picking one or two companies and maybe getting one wrong. Um, I think ETFs are probably the best way to do that because you could go out and create it on your own, but now you've got to have more capital to go out and buy 30 or 40 stocks within one theme. You can do it all for one price. You know, fractional shares are here. So you can even just do it for flat dollar amounts on certain platforms and be in the area. So I look at that more as that's kind of the fun part of your portfolio for most people. Uh, I wouldn't put all of your eggs in one theme. I would look at it as you've got your core portfolio that's really going to do the work for you in the long run. And you take a flyer on a few things and maybe you get it right. But if you get it wrong, it's not going to blow your plane up. Right. Makes sense. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, one question broadly on investment products. I know, you know, 60s, 70s, 80s, it was mutual funds and then 90s, 2000s. And now it was kind of ETFs have, you know, come in and become the most popular product that people invest in. Do you think there's a next step after ETFs? You know, do you think there's some place that the investment world is going to go? Is it direct indexing, something else? Are you seeing anything from like products being offered, stuff like that? Or are ETFs, uh, solidly going to be here to stay for the next decade or so? ETFs will definitely be here to stay for the next decade. Um, We'll see, I believe we'll see a transition from mutual funds more and more to ETFs. I don't see ETFs going away. 
I do think that direct indexing has its place. Right now, it's really reserved for higher net worth individuals. I've heard rumblings of companies being able to offer it for smaller accounts. But at smaller account levels, I still think an ETF accomplishes what you need it to. It's not so different from direct indexing other than you don't have total control. Direct indexing, I think, really has a place if you get into ESG investing, then you as the investor really get to build the portfolio that mostly aligns with those ESG principles you find most valuable. And today, if you go and get an ESG, assuming everybody knows what that means, ESG yeah. is uh, environmentally, social, corporate governance. It's, so it's kind of investing, weeding out bad actors or, or areas that you don't want to support. You could go in and invest in an ESG portfolio today, but you can't control. So there might be a company in there. Like, let's say you wanted to invest in funds that had nothing to do with firearms and you didn't realize it, but Walmart is actually in that ETF because it checks off other boxes. But for a while, Walmart was the largest guns dealer in the US. You have no control over that. But if you go the direct indexing route, you plug out anything that you don't want to be in there and you have more control. But I think that's the best use case for the average investors if you want to go down that path. Otherwise, I think ETFs are the, the best way to go. They're tax efficient. They're real low cost. It's very simple. You can get very specific, like we talked about with the themes, or you can just be very broad market and just be in the market and keep it simple. So I haven't heard of anything else other than direct indexing that will be new, but I've got to imagine that you will continue to innovate and there'll be something that will be um, a complement to what ETFs offer. In terms of the RIA industry broadly, um, it looks like we've seen a shift. I, I know sort of probably a while ago, it was more of like the sense of competition. Like, all right, he's an advisor. He can take my clients. He can take my money, that kind of thing. And it seems maybe it's through mass communications or media. So Twitter, stuff like that, that it's turned sort of into the sense of collaboration. Uh, what, and I know you, you, there's a community that you have, which I assume you'll talk about. What is that? And then how has it benefited you? I would tell everybody, whether you're in finance or not, collaboration, even amongst your quote unquote competitors, is extremely valuable. I don't live in this world where it's zero sum. There's enough for all of us to eat. Um, and even if you're selling products, your product is not always going to be the best solution for everybody. And rather than force somebody in an, an investment or in a product that's not right for them, how much better off would you be sending them to the right fit for them? I think goodwill gets end up, ends up coming around back to you. So it's always been something that I've always strived to do. I do think that social media has made it a lot easier. So I got on Twitter a few years ago and found this whole world of other finance professionals that are exchanging ideas, you know, sharing their blog posts, going on each other's podcasts, having conversations, and really exchanging ideas. And once I got into that world and started networking, you know, my network of other professionals is, is amazing. And if there's something that I don't know, I know somebody who can help me out. That might be helping me out to help my client, or it may be to be able to make an introduction to somebody so that they get better service because I can't provide that specific need. And that really feeds into going back to one of your questions earlier about, is there a cap to clients? Maybe that becomes a problem, or maybe you cut, maybe as an advisor, you become very, you know, very dialed in on a certain niche. So I have a friend in town that works with only optometrists, has an amazingly successful practice. If I ever met an optometrist, I don't know the intricacies of their business. I would refer them to Adam in a heartbeat. Um, but I wouldn't know him if it wasn't from collaborating and not viewing him as a competitor. So I think since I know that I can't 
service everybody and not everybody is a good fit for me, why view him and other advisors as competitors when I can view them as allies? And if I really want the financial services profession to look better and have a better reputation, it's better that we all act together so we help the public in general rather than fighting over who the next person is. Another thing that's kind of led to this collaboration is a move away from our profession from sales to advice. So when you're trying to sell, if you're compensated as an advisor by selling, the only way I make money is to sell you an investment. Then maybe it is a little bit more competition between me and the other advisor because somebody needs to sell you a fund. It's either him or I. But if it's really about establishing relationships and having long-term relationships and giving advice, then the need to you know, eat what you kill kind of goes away. It's more about servicing the relationship and then it gets back to the point where there does become a threshold where you can't take on more clients. So it is much more collaborative, even though... I see that, and you guys obviously see it as a large. I still think the financial services profession does not view other financial professionals as collaboration as collaborators. Um, I view it so much that another advisor and I collaborated together to start a community called the AGC, and the AGC is basically a private community of nothing but financial advisors. That's the only requirement is you have to be an advisor. Where we are in an online community sharing best practices, sharing templates with each other, having conversations, asking questions. Sometimes they're business related, sometimes they're client related. We bring in guest speakers and it's really a cool environment because we're all learning and getting better as advisors and it provides this sense of community that a lot of us as advisors don't have. You know, it's, I run my firm by myself. I have one employee right now. So there's not this team that I have but I have a hundred advisors in that community that I could go to and share successes, voice frustrations and learn from um, the collaborative environment is making us all better. I, I think it will only continue to, to move that direction. Fascinating. Right, right. Yeah. And if you're on Twitter, I guess in the FinTwit community, you think that everyone is collaborating with each other, but that that's just a small sliver of the overall financial population. Right. Right. I mean, you, you have in situations in certain larger firms, advisors within the same company battling each other, viewing each other as competitors and, and enemies, if you will, which is just, to me, is baffling. But that's, that's the culture of where they live. Uh, when you're independent, you don't have those, those, that structure over you forcing you in that direction. And you can see that other people can help you, whether it, again, whether it's exchange of ideas, making introductions. Um, you know, collaboration has been huge for my development over the last few years in a number of ways. Right. All right. Well, let's move on to the next question then. If there's one thing you could change about the wealth management industry, what would it be? Um, I, I have two things. The first one is, and I don't have the answer for it. I wish the wealth management industry could help more people. There's a huge segment of the population that really could benefit from working with a financial advisor and there's, it's, it's cost prohibitive. So the people who really could benefit from sitting down with somebody to do a budget um, or just handle some basic financial advice, you, you usually can't get it. And, you know, I try to help out people when I can and do some pro bono work, but I'm just as guilty as every other financial professional just because there's not a way to make a living as an advisor helping those people who don't have a certain level of income or certain level of assets because that's how we're compensated. So I wish there was a way to help more people when it comes to getting financial advice. Um, the other thing I wish, I wish our profession would quit fighting with each other so much. I don't know if you guys see it on Twitter, but 
you know, there are different business models for advisors. There's the fee only world, there's the commission world, there's hybrid, there's different types of fees. And on Twitter, especially, there's a lot of fighting over which business model is right and bickering. And I just think it makes our profession look bad. So I would rather there be a collective agreement of let's just make sure clients are being taken care of. Choice is good. So let's have different business models. Let's have different relationships, different fee structures, be transparent and let clients choose what's best for them and not spend time bad mouthing each other. Yeah. That's fascinating. What you said about the, in, in terms of being able to help everyone, it, like I think that stems from financial education um, and sort of laying the groundwork and it doesn't seem, you know, it, financial advice seems kind of like it's behind a wall. Like not everyone gets access to it. I would love to see that kind of laid um, down at the ground level in terms of like elementary school or anything like that. Um, and so that everyone kind of gets access to that same advice. And that starts to get into some bigger things. Like you look at education today, I look at education today versus when I was going through school, like so much, at least in Indiana, so much today from the education system is about teaching to the standardized tests and personal right. finance does not show up on there. So they're not going to bring that in. There's a lot of, the thing is there's a lot of great information out there. Your podcast would be one of them. There's a lot of great free resources out there for people just to start to get some basic information, start to get an interest and understanding of finance, but people don't, I don't, for whatever reason, I don't think individuals want to go. Maybe it's because they're not exposed to it. They think they don't have access to it. They just don't know it's out there. It's, it's something that I think we need to talk about more. And maybe it even goes further back to for so long, and even still today, the, the subject of money was taboo. You, you didn't talk about money. You never talked about how much you made. You know, I didn't know how much my parents made. I didn't know how much we had in the bank. Like, that was just not something that you ever talked about. And I think that because we don't talk about it in our family units, then we don't go out and look about it unless somebody puts it in front of us. So I, I agree that financial literacy is something that needs to be picked up. Um, and I think that it can happen in a lot of places. School could be one and the homes could be another. You know, we advisors could do a better job of finding more time for pro bono services. Um, I, I mean, I, I see people out there who are making good strides forward, but we have a long way to go. Right, right, right. Uh, all right. One more question before we hit our, uh, or one more question about uh, wealth management and your uh, mm -hmm. business in general. How important is it for social media for communicating with clients or maybe on the other hand, uh, recruiting clients? I believe it's a non-negotiable for advisors. Um, there are a lot of advisors that successfully grow their business without using social media. But for me and my personality type, it's the only way, you know, I'm not going to cold call. I'm not going to go door to door. I'm not going to do seminars, nothing wrong with advisors that do that, but that doesn't fit my personality. For me, social media plays a big part in creating content because one, I, I do want to try to educate the public. Not everybody will be a client. Not everybody needs me as an advisor, but they need some information. So that's why I have a blog. That's why I do videos. That's why I do podcasts is I want to put information out there. Ultimately, I hope it positions myself as an expert, but to the business development side of things, it gives people who are reading and listening to me a chance to get to know me. So if you read my blog, you know I have three boys. You know I love hip-hop. You know a lot about me that you can judge whether or not I would be a good fit from a personality standpoint. And then you begin to read my philosophy on it, investing and planning, and now you know the business side lines up as well. So when you come in as a new client, 
I'm really deciding, are you a good fit for me where you have already decided that I'm the great advisor for you? So for me, I think it's, it's non-negotiable. You want people to know you before they call. You want to build a fan base of clients before they reach out to you. And putting yourself out there is the best way to do that. As far as working with existing clients, it's, it's huge because clients want to hear from you in between your meetings. And it's not as scalable to call every client every month or every week. And not that you necessarily need to, but there might be things to go through. But if I'm writing a blog every week and I send them, they're hearing from me every week. I really want to figure out how to use um, voice technology. I have a flash briefing that I've kind of let go stagnant right now, but have a flash briefing that goes three days a week that clients can hear from me if they want to. I think ongoing communication is very important uh, it continues to build the bond. It lets people know that you're on top of things. It may answer questions they have before they reach out to you. And it's very scalable. I can create one piece of content and send it to all of my clients. And in a sense, have a conversation with hundreds of my clients once a week. How um, much do so you figure weekly conversations plus semi-annual reviews plus a client appreciation event? Like there's a lot of contact there. Um, and, and finally, you can also use the content to kind of, you know, fight with the media saying. So the media has one agenda, which is advertising. It's not necessarily to, to tell your clients the best things to do. So if I know what's going on in the media, I know what my clients are hearing, I can break that down and help them understand it. So I do a weekly video that they get every Sunday uh, that breaks down, I just call it the week in the review. I break down four or five headlines they may have heard, what it means, explain it to them. You'll break down the inverted yield curve or break down what the Fed is doing because most people don't know what that means and they hear about it and I can be the one to you know, translate that to them so they can understand it. How much of an advantage do you think it is to be registered as an independent advisor in terms of nurturing those relationships that you make? Because I know I have family members that work for the bigger firms or that have worked for the bigger firms and they're limited in terms of how they can communicate. Like a lot of them can't use social media as a means for communication with clients. Do you think you have like a major advantage being that you're independent? From, from a content standpoint and being visible and social, 100%. Um, now, I, I do want to throw a caveat out there. I don't think being an independent makes you a better financial advisor. That goes back to my wish that advisors would quit fighting. I know a ton of great advisors that live in the bigger firms and do a good job. They can't do the content, but you know, sometimes there's a stigma that if you aren't independent, you may not be as good of an advisor. And that's not the case. And there are plenty of shady independent advisors as well. I know that's not your question, but I yeah. do want to put that out there. I really am. I want our profession to be, I want it to be elevated across the board. And we need advisors in every business model doing what's right for clients. I don't think where you live always tells the full story. But from a content standpoint, yes, they have compliance. And if you think about it, if you're running an organization with thousands of advisors, one advisor saying one bad thing could blow things up for you. And it's hard to manage what are your thousand advisors saying compared yeah. to my firm where there's one person creating content and it's me. I know what I'm saying. I know I'm not saying anything wrong. I can put out um, what I need to put out there. So it is a big advantage to be an independent. And you're seeing a lot of firms or a lot of advisors leave the traditional business model to go to independent, not only because of the ability to be content driven, but that is part of the decision. Okay. Um, we're going to pivot to your personal investing style before we get to the wrap-ups. What do you do in terms of personal investing? Are you mostly ETFs? Do you, you know, take a flyer, like you said, on some pure equities? Um, how do you invest personally? So 
personally, all of our investments, mine, my wife, the boys are in the same funds that my clients have. Uh, I believe that if I'm telling my clients they should be investing in certain funds, I should invest in them as well. Um, allocations might differ. You know, I'm pretty risk tolerant, so I might be more aggressive than some clients, but I'm holding the same funds and it is a mix of mutual funds and ETFs. So, um, you know, not to throw any specific tickers out there, but I do utilize dimensional funds uh, for a lot of the mutual funds. And then I use um, just some broad-based index ETFs. My investment philosophy really is, a, I believe, in global diversification, keeping costs low. Um, I don't think that active management is dead. I don't think active management is bad, but I don't want to spend my time trying to pick the right funds. I'd rather just have my clients have market um, participation and focus on the things we can control within their plan. Um, so the majority of my funds are there. I do have a Roth IRA that for fun, I pick a handful of stocks just because I enjoy it. And I don't discourage my clients from doing the same thing. Um, if you have an interest in picking a few stocks because you enjoy it, uh, we'll figure out how much we can afford to do. And if you blow it up, your plan's not in any trouble and go ahead and do that. I want my clients to be engaged. And if somebody's engaged to the point where they want to buy a few shares of a stock and it doesn't harm anything, then I think that's 100% okay. Um, and I even have a little bit of a um, bi-weekly Bitcoin DCA that goes on as well. Um, I don't do that with clients. Um, again, if clients want to invest in cryptocurrencies, I'm more than uh, comfortable having the conversation. I'm more than comfortable of giving them my opinion and helping them figure out what would be an appropriate allocation, but I'm not going to manage it and I'm not going to recommend which coins or which crypto they should be buying. But for the most part, 90% of the portfolio or so is exactly what my clients hold. You mentioned uh, the term dimensional uh, mutual funds, I think. What, what is that for anyone that doesn't know? So Dimensional Funds, um, it's a mutual fund company. Um, they work exclusively through advisors, meaning as an individual investor on your own, you're not able to go to a, a retail broker like TD or Schwab and purchase Dimensional Funds. Um, the, re the reason they're called Dimensional is they invest in factors. So factors are different areas of the market, you know, equities versus bonds. Those are different factors. Small companies versus large, value versus growth. Those are all factors. And there's Eugene Fama and Kenneth French, who both won uh, Nobel Prizes in their economic studies that have identified certain factors. Dimensional funds, their funds are built on these factors. Hmm. So they're not technically a passive shop, but they're also not active. They invest according with these different factors. Um, they're pretty low cost for a mutual fund. Um, I just really... I do believe in the factors. I believe in the science behind, even though value has gotten swamped for the last however many years. Um, that's part of investing in value. So dimensional funds is just a, it's a mutual fund company. You could, um, you know, American funds is a company people know. Fidelity has funds. Dimensional funds is just another company like that that has a, a unique, unique way to the way that they invest. Interesting. All right. Well, yeah, let's get to the two wrap-up questions then. Uh, these are the ones we ask every interviewee. Uh, what is one financial saying that you disagree with? I couldn't come up with an actual saying, but I came up with, there might be a saying for it. I, I don't believe that you have to sacrifice everything, for, everything today to save for tomorrow. So I don't know a saying for that, but it's a principle of sacrifice everything today to build up this retirement nest egg that maybe one day you don't get to. I'm a big believer in balance. So I think that we can prepare for tomorrow while we enjoy today as well. And the enjoyment I think should be more in line with your values and experiences, not buying a bunch of things. So I, 
I kind of dodged that question only because I couldn't think of a saying. I couldn't find a saying that tied into that, but that would be the one principle I disagree with. No, I like that. I, I, I don't think we've heard that one before, um, but yeah, I, I think if you enjoy having that morning coffee, you shouldn't be like saving yourself. Like, you know, I feel like too many people are like, well, if buy all those coffees, you'd have a million dollars. So it's right. Um, there's definitely, but and, that, and that's an older, older mindset, older school of thought. Um, and also I, th- I and I'll, we'll get to the next question. This will be real quick. Um, I also think that like your retirement is not going to be like my parents and my grandparents. I think realistically, you guys need to be thinking you're going to work later in life because you're going to live longer in life. And I think that our careers will allow us to have that balance. I think because we're going to work longer, that gives us more time to save. It gives more time for the money that we do save early on to compound. And it may even be a scenario where we work a, like a corporate career for 30 years. And then the next 15, 20 years is consulting or freelance work to bring in some extra income, but not a traditional retirement where you don't do anything. Um, and again, if you have more time, that gives you more years to save, more years to compound. I think you'll have sabbaticals that come in and you've got a plan for those things to be able to be able to do it. So um, I, I really do believe in finding balance, and I personally do that for my, myself. So I practice what I preach. Okay. What is one piece of advice you have for anyone starting out in the investing world? Uh, it's a tough one because um, I wanted to go investing, but I'm going to put my advisor hat on. So yeah. forgive me. I think that managing cash flow and understanding your cash flow would be the first thing that's most important, meaning live below your means. Um, make sure you have an emergency fund. If we're ever seeing a time where the value of an emergency fund is very important, we're living it right now. Whether you're being furloughed or you lose your job or you own a business and your business is making less money, having money that's liquid and safe because you've saved is very valuable. Um, so I would say make sure you understand your budget, have a budget, live below your means, and then that's when you can kind of get into the investing. And when it comes to investing, I would just keep it simple. All right. All right. Well, thank you, Justin, for coming on to the show. Really enjoyed it. Hey, guys. I appreciate it. I had a blast. Welcome back in. Thank you once again to Justin Castelli for coming on the show. Next up, we have our hot water. I'm going to go first. All right. Okay. Go ahead. Uh, Hopefully, you don't steal anything. I think I might have because this one was hilarious. It was on Twitter. Um, Silicon Valley is in hot water because they have officially taken things too far. This week, I stumbled across an app called HumanIPO.app. Well, you did not stumble upon it. Um, no, I. Other people tweeted it. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. No, I stumbled across it on Twitter. Um, but here is the uh, the front page of the website. It says Human IPOs of people you believe in. Issue and trade human equity backed by future time. It says, meet publicly traded individuals. So I went to one of these accounts and it says, Mike Merrill, world's first publicly traded person. Mike Merrill took crowdfunding to a new level when in 2008 he divided himself into 100,000 shares and sold them at an initial public offering price of a dollar a share. Uh, there were people in the comments saying this is the new SaaS, slavery as a service. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe that's taking it a little too far, but this, no, is, this is a bad is, idea, right? This is, uh, I mean, this is slavery. You're selling individuals for their work. I mean, obviously, it's a l- little better 
uh, lifestyle, but it's technically... They're choosing, yeah. Lambda school is technically indentured servitude, although people, you know, it's you're not... You're choosing whether to do that. And this is technically a form of slavery, because other people own a person. Yeah. But they're, it's not like they're forced to do this. Um, how to, so. How bad of an idea is this? Terrible. It's awful. Is there any scenario in which this works? No. Maybe if they invented this in the 1300s. Silicon Valley, there was the tweet where Silicon Valley, uh, I forget who it was, Silicon Valley, like, what do they do? They reinvent slavery as a service in the dig- with using digital tools like every three months. It's wild. Like that, I mean, that's just what they do. It's 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 insane. Yeah. Like we want to, you know, lower the cost of human capital. Uh, I mean, dude, come on, guys. Like you, I don't. Would you own, invest I, in any one of these people? I don't want to own any other person. That's just too. Like I love investing, but no, 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 no. Okay. Um. All right. And then the second one that I had here, and this is a real one. Uh, Zoom may be in hot water because this week Facebook announced a new free video calling service of up to 50 people. Do you – and there was a lot of debate on Twitter. Do you think this poses any material threat to Zoom's business? Mm, probably not because – yeah, I don't think so. As long as they still have the free tier for Zoom and then they make all their money from businesses, right. a lot of kids and uh, people that are just doing it socially are going to use Zoom. I don't think Zoom, either way, and it's, it's going to be fine. I I believe. I don't know. I don't think Zoom was initially intended. I mean, initially it was intended to be B two B, so yeah, it wasn't for the social aspect. Like, oh, let's Zoom as a family, and they don't want to make money on that. It's turned into that, which I think Facebook Facebook could eventually take that from them, but that doesn't hurt Zoom's business model. No, and it, yeah, it's ba- you know the uh, social aspect of maybe just a family call or friends uh, calling is just free marketing for Zoom. And if that goes away, they're gonna have to spend a little more on marketing. But uh, you know, they're I feel just like, gonna benefit right now. I feel like that. businesses would never d- take the Facebook video. Loss. No, 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 no. Yeah, no. Because they know they're like, no, I'm not just gonna let you steal my data and advertise. Yeah, yeah. Plus, Facebook's not. It's not professional um i don't know that's Fair. just my feel all right um that's all i had for hot water okay well i have the human ipo one so next week i get to go first because you've been stealing mine by going first you usually um, have more though so yeah i guess i else? have some here all right the berkshire meeting though is in hot water charlie munger will not be participating in the live stream saw this probably worried about the corona but i don't know maybe not hopefully you know fingers crossed he's doing okay uh but the other guy if you're interested uh, in Berkshire, if you're Greg a Berkshire Abel. person, yeah, he will be doing the question and answers with Buffett. So that'll Alongside. be cool to see maybe the you know the guy waiting in the wings. Um, EBITDA, though, is also in hot water because COVID-19 is officially an EBITDA adjustment line. It was on multiple SEC filings. Don't know what companies, but they had COVID-19 related costs, and then they were backing that out for their EBITDA uh, yeah. lines, EBITDA. You know. I might buy an EBITDA mug. Yeah, it'd be nice. I'm paying attention to EBITDA numbers this yeah, quarter. Yeah, I'm definitely. I want to make a liquidity shirt to wear to a, a party, but we're getting too old to uh, wear t-shirts to parties anymore. So that's disappointing. Okay. Uh, what else? Let's see. One more. Oh, Martin Screlly haters. We've talked about this before, but one company is prepared to work on trials for a disease cure uh, treatments with him. Um, if he cures this virus and saves the world, that would, for one, be a, quite the twist. 
and two, should he just be released from prison and just allowed to do whatever he wants as long as he doesn't like murder people for the rest of his life? Like free everything. Sure. I think what would be in the best interest of the public would be to just give him a billion or two and say, you're not allowed to defraud anyone with this. Or up prices by a thousand percent on pharmaceuticals for people that die for that. Or do that, but you can be rich. Here you go. Uh, it's free money. Just do research. Be Do everything you were doing without the money component. <laughs> yeah, that's probably a better way. Um, okay, Fuck, Mary Kill this week. The theme is earnings that come out tomorrow as of the time you guys are probably listening. So Wednesday, April 29th. Earnings that come out that day. Hey, that's the biggest day. Uh, it's not going to be the companies you were hoping for. This is Boeing, GE, and eBay. eBay. Interesting. Boeing, GE, eBay. All. Not, <laughs> not great. Good. Not good. Not good. Um, I'll marry Boeing because they're too big to fail. I'll fuck eBay. Maybe they had a nice boost and people are kind of forgetting about them. And I'll kill GE just because the pension liabilities are terrible, but I would own none of these. Now, in, okay, yeah. What do you got? I'm thinking probably the same. Maybe there's that that value play bump on GE earnings or something that I don't see as a possibility, but maybe. Um, but I think it's more likely that there'd be. Uh, Boeing is probably the one I'd marry, and then the other two are kind of a toss-up. Um, anecdotal evidence, though, I didn't have much. No, I had some. I've had it with young people. Young people? You are a young person. I know. I know. But I hate I, – I can't take it anymore. I was told this week that the odds of getting coronavirus are less than winning the lottery because total confirmed cases divided by the world's population is really low. Uh, right, right. They're really smart. They've so, probably been watching a lot of YouTube videos. I'm losing hope in humanity um, in the future. It's been a rough week, but yeah. Hopefully it's just the Dunning-Kruger effect. Um, yeah. If you explain them the Dunning-Kruger effect, I think those people would probably say, like, nah, nah, that doesn't apply to me, which is rejection. the yeah. Dunning-Kruger effect. Other one, what did you think of the Netflix movie Extraction? Very good. Um, I think I it's a it. one-timer. It's not something I rewatch, but it was good. Yeah, I liked it. Um, I liked it a lot, yeah. For an action movie, great watch. There's um, my subscription renewal for a month. Yeah, that's worth the $10 you'd pay at the movies. Um, definitely worth it. And yeah, shows that pricing power, although we act like we're Netflix bulls. We don't actually own the stock. But. Yeah, maybe we should. Okay, what else? I got one. So, The Fangs... And I guess plus Microsoft are trading like they are immune to a recession. Do are you think they are? Dry powder, baby. You got a whole lot of it. <laughs> they, I guess they got a lot of cash. But what if Google and Facebook's ad rates plummet and the business and the revenues flatline? Then there goes our website revenue. <laughs> yeah, that. Yeah, we don't get any money from that. That <laughs> podcast revenue uh, definitely I don't get know. better rates. But... I mean, if you think, I don't know. You don't know? I mean, th- there's so like, are they recession winning? The whole winning begets winning thing. I- I'm not buying the stock. I don't own the stock. I don't necessarily know if it's a good idea because just due to the law of large numbers. But with that much capital, you and that much free capital, you can make mistakes. 
Yeah, but what if... You can afford them. Yeah, I know, but I just I don't think any of those companies are recession proof. You know, Amazon I guess is anti fragile in this situation. Uh, but why all the other it? ones, I don't. Why are they not recession proof? If the economy retracts, these companies are basically the economy. Wouldn't they retract? Yeah, yeah. The ad revenue is makes up a lot of these businesses, but Amazon I would almost go. And say is recession proof at this point. What if well, this recession? Okay, this recession, yes. But in a recession, what would Amazon is not recession proof. They are the consumer economy. Them and Walmart are not recession proof. They might, you know, they have a floor. Do they have a high floor? But they are. They're not going to grow. Of the five, I would say they are the most recession proof. Amazon, maybe. Action, maybe. Maybe I'm taking that. I might take that back. I don't know. Microsoft would be. I haven't done enough digging into it. Yeah, that's the second one. I was uh, but say. businesses, though, if businesses are going out of business, I mean, is subscriptions recession proof? Yeah. Well, Coca Cola and McDonald's, maybe. Yeah. And All I right. guess Walmart, you could have that. Well, argue that, but whatever. But hey, Coca Cola didn't make it through this recession, so. What do you well, mean? Well, they did, but 25% of sales were down because of restaurants, stores. Oh, not right, buying. right, yeah. Well, this one, I guess, is a special case, so maybe you so could maybe McDonald's for... and that's it. Maybe, yeah. And Walmart, I guess. They're always around in a recession. Okay. Well, and that's going to do it. Thank you once again, Justin Costelli, for coming on the show. Follow us wherever you're listening. Like and uh, review. We really appreciate the reviews. Um, and you can email us for any ideas, anything you want to talk about at the chit chat money podcast at gmail.com. Uh, that is chit chat money podcast at gmail.com. We are not financial advisors. Anything we say or discuss here on chit chat money is not formal advice or recommendation. Thank you guys for listening. We'll see you next week.